0: Good afternoon, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I'm your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 284, and we're going to take a look at what is called the Pure Food and Drug Act. We have not discussed this. We have discussed the Food and Drug Administration We've discussed different things of that nature, but we have not talked about this because this actually precedes all of that. So this is very interesting. So, again, this is the Pure Food and Drug Act. And just a little bit of background quickly. This was effective January 1st in 1907. So it goes back quite a ways. It has had several, I would say, acts that have been appealed and then amendments that have been added over time. Um, Some major amendments include the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, and then the Food Quality Protection Act of 1996. So let's take a look at this a little bit more in detail. It says the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, also known as Dr. Wiley's Law, was the first of a series of significant consumer protection laws, which was enacted by the Congress in the 20th century and led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration Its main purpose was to ban foreign and interstate traffic in adulterated or mislabeled food and drug products, and it directed the U.S. Bureau of Chemistry to inspect products and refer offenders to prosecutors. Thank goodness, right? It required that active ingredients be placed on the label of a drug's packaging and that drugs could not fall below purity levels established by the United States, uh, I guess, pharmacia. Well, they're saying pharmacopoeia, but it's like United States pharmacy or the national formulary. So there are a couple of different words here that are used. There's the United States pharmacopoeia. I have not heard of that, but there are different agencies that go under, I would say, the umbrella of the United States regulating drugs and pharmacies and things of that nature. And so we will take a look at those uh, more closely, but on an individual level, like separate topics, because Anything to do with pharmaceuticals is a lot to handle. So, but we're definitely going to take a look at it, just not specifically in this particular episode. Um, but moving on, it says, in the late 1800s, the quality of food in the United States decreased significantly as populations moved to cities and the time from farm to market increased. I totally believe that. It's very true. Many food producers turned to using dangerous preservatives even formaldehyde, to keep food fresh. Simultaneously, the quality of medicine was not good at all. Uh, there was what was called quack medicine, was frequent, meaning someone claimed to be a doctor, but they're really not. Um, it's, it's a type of fraud, and it's really quite horrible and led to many deaths over the years. But it says quack medicine was frequent, and many drugs were addictive or dangerous without actually providing a curative effect. Opium and alcohol were chief ingredients even in infant medicines. The work of muckraking journalists exposed the horrific practices of both industries and caused a public outcry. I don't blame them. Uh, Foremost among such exposés was The Jungle, and I've read that. That's a very interesting book uh, by Upton Sinclair, uh, published the same year as The Act, with its graphic and revolting descriptions of unsanitary conditions, and unscrupulous practices rampant in the meatpacking industry. So just think about things that happen in China and India. That's basically what was going on here in the United States, but prior to legislation being passed to prevent all that. Um, it says that that particular piece of work, the jungle, um, was an inspirational piece that kept the public's attention on the important issue of unhygienic meat processing plants, and, um, It says here that Sinclair said, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. (laughs) So, very true. Um, So, and it says, as outraged readers demanded and got the Pure Food and Drug Act as well as the 1906 Federal Meat Inspection Act. Very interesting there as well. Uh, moving on, it says the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 was a key piece of progressive-era legislation signed by President Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican, on the same day as the Federal Meat Inspection, Meat Inspection Act. Enforcement of the Pure Food and Drug Act was assigned to the Bureau of Chemistry and the United States Department of Agriculture, which was renamed the United States Food and Drug Administration in 1930. The Meat Inspection Act was assigned to what is now known as the Food Food Safety and Inspection Service, which remains in the United States Department of Agriculture. The first federal law regulating foods and drugs, the 1906 Act's reach, was limited to foods and drugs moving in interstate commerce. So basically, if something did not cross state lines, they had no jurisdiction to implement anything. That's different now, but that's how it was back then. Although the law drew upon many precedents, provisions, and legal experiments pioneered in individual states, the federal law defined misbranding and adulteration for the first time and prescribed penalties for each. The law recognized the U.S. uh, pharmacopoeia and the national formulary as standards uh, authorities for drugs, but made no similar provision for federal food standards. The law was basically a truth in labeling uh, labeling law uh, designed to raise standards in the food and drug industries and protect the reputations and pocketbooks of honest businessmen. Well, that's that sentence is not completely true. So um, it's, it it's a good law. It started the foundation for what we have today. So, you know, sometimes you have to take these articles with a grain of salt, and obviously this person, whoever wrote that last sentence, is obviously against capitalism because who says pocketbooks? I mean, it's it's like that's not lingo that's used very much anymore. So, um usually we say lining the pockets, but pocketbooks like we don't use that term anymore, uh, term anymore. Um that is from a long time ago I was thinking like World War II, they would have used the term pocketbook, but we don't really use that term anymore. So, sometimes you have to take these um These articles with a grain of salt, which is why we go over them and why I call out things that are good, bad or ugly or I just don't agree with. Or maybe it's it's not um, historical like that last sentence. um, I don't really agree with it because it's it's not always about holding big business accountable. It's about holding individuals accountable because, you know, let's say, for example, um, someone has a meatpacking plant and they violate the law. Yes, their company will be fined, but also the individuals are held accountable. Because if a company, let's say, for example, a meatpacking plant, if they are not operating correctly, someone in the higher up, basically in the higher up chain of command, they're making the decision to look the other way. So there are times that people do serve federal prison time, and sometimes they go to state jail, depending on, um, or the state penitentiary is the correct word. But, you know, it depends on what crime is committed and also what can be proven. So it's not just about um, big business. I'm all for big business, but it needs to be done correctly and appropriately. And if a big business actually cares about its consumers, then it will do everything it can to never put their consumers at risk. So you just kind of have to take some of these things with a grain of salt, um, just don't get Huffy and Puffy because it's easy to do so. Um but needs to say most business people are good people. And what's interesting is that this says, you know, the the pocketbooks of of honest businessmen or whatever. Well, there were also business women, and sometimes business women are just as corrupt as men. Sometimes worse. I think it depends on the industry. So this is obviously a very jaded sentence, the last one that we read, but let's move on. It says, under the law, drug labels, for example, had to list any of 10 ingredients that were deemed addictive or dangerous on the product label if they were present and could not list them if they were not present. Alcohol, morphine, opium, and cannabis were all included on the list of these addictive and or dangerous drugs. The law also established a federal, it says cadre, I don't know what that word is, of food and drug inspectors, basically an agency, um, that one southern opponent of the legislation criticized as a Trojan horse with a belly full of inspectors and other employees. <laughs> penalties under the law were modest, but um, an um, underappreciated provision of the act proved more powerful than monetary penalt- penalties. Goods found in violation of various areas of the law were subject to seizure and destruction at the expense of the manufacturer. That combined with the legal requirement that all convictions be published as notices of judgment proved to be important tools in the enforcement of the statute and had a deterrent effect upon would-be violators. Well, to a certain extent, some people just don't care. Like you, you, you just can't assume that something is going to be a deterrent, although we should have deterrence, but you should never assume that because I've met weasels over the years. There isn't a law in the books that would stop them from doing something. I mean, it's just some people just don't have ethics and morals, and they choose to be that way. But but behind that, sometimes there is a natural character flaw, and they have chosen not to address that character flaw, and so they don't care to change and to become a better person. But anyway, it says deficiencies in this original statute, which had become noticeable uh, noticeable by the 1920s, led to the replacement of the 1906 statute with the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which was enacted in 1938 and signed by President Franklin Roosevelt, a Democrat. And thus, the act, along with its numerous amendments, remains the statutory basis for federal regulation of all foods, drugs, biological products, cosmetics, medical devices, tobacco, and radiation-emitting devices by the United States Food and Drug Administration. I'm going to skip this next part because I think it's just too much detail. It, It goes on to... Or into about history of the passage of it. Um, but it's just part of the draft, and I don't care to read that part. Um, but it says it took 27 years to adapt, I'm sorry, to adopt the 1906 statute, during which time the public was made aware of many problems with foods and drugs in the U.S. Muckraking journalists, such as Samuel Hopkins Adams, um, targeted the patent medicine industry with its high alcoholic content. And so, Here's the thing. Um, I'm not saying that that what they did was normal or right, but sometimes alcohol is used in medicines. And also there are different types of alcohol. Like there's glycol alcohol. I think there's methanol, but like there's all these different derivatives. Well, all of this, you have to remember that back in the day, that was not an exact science yet. Like someone had to invent these different things. Like say, for example, cough syrup. Almost all cough syrups, unless they're for children or like infants, I think, if I remember correctly, they have a derivative of some type of alcohol or menthol or whatever the case may be. That's why you have to be careful about how much cough syrup you ingest. But back in the day, they didn't have all these differences. Like it really had not been invented yet and there were not patents on it yet. So a lot of these companies, whether they were good or bad, most of them good, they were experimenting with all these different products. Like I've said in times past, everything had to start somewhere. And unfortunately, whenever you're starting something new, you basically and anyone that participates in your product are the guinea pigs. That's just how it is with anything. It's the same thing with chemo. It's the same thing uh, with, with biologics. I mean, it's the same thing with, with tires or cars or even the electric car. At one point in time, the electric car was brand new. Well, we've learned a lot about electric cars. <laughs> Not a big fan of them, but I mean, just think about all the horrific car wrecks that have happened because a electric car or a self-driving car drove a person or a family off a, off a cliff or into a wall and it killed them. So there, there are things. Uh, that things have to be addressed, like you have to work out the kinks. So it's it's not always what you think it's talking about whenever it's talking about, oh, these companies, they didn't care, they're just trying to manufacture stuff. I'm sure some were not very good manufacturers. I'm I'm sure some of them were greedy, but not all of them. Because many of these companies that started way back in the day are companies that we still have today, like Nabisco. I mean, think about that. So not every company that was – you know, making products way back in the day, not all of them were bad, not all of them. In fact, many of them were good, and many of them hired scientists and researchers to make sure that, that the product that they are producing is actually what is needed. Like, if you take a look at the history of cat food and dog food, you know, we, we don't realize this, and I didn't know this until I, until I saw a documentary recently about cat food and dog food, but someone had to invent that. Prior to the turn of the century, there, there really wasn't any dog food or cat food. Dogs typically just ate scraps from the table, and cats, they were considered mousers, so their diet was mostly rodents. But it was over time that dog food and cat food were invented, and there was one company, I can't remember if it was Frisky's or Purina, I'm trying to remember which one it is or was, but um, they actually created a scientific uh, laboratory and they studied like like 180 dogs because they want to know, hey, if we make a dog food because it start with dog food, not cat food. If we make a dog food, what all do we put in it? Like what do dogs need um, nutritionally to be healthy? And so they did blood work. They hired all these scientists. And so it created like the largest lab at that time to study dogs and their their nutritional value that they need. Another thing that you need to remember is that veterinary science was in its infancy around the turn of the century. It was very crude, and it was not what it is today, not by any means. And so um, because of the research and development that was done basically to invent dog food and cat food, the the world of veterinary medicine greatly expanded because prior to dog food and cat food being invented, veterinary medicine was not really for dogs and cats. It was mostly for farmers and their livestock. You know, vets were mostly trained on horses and cattle and pigs and things like that. Why? Because of agriculture and because of meat products and things of that nature. Well, over time, people were starting to really love their pets, and they were starting to see their dog or their cat as their pet. It wasn't just um, for, you know, herding cattle or for catching mice, because another thing you have to remember is that more and more people were leaving the country. I don't mean like the United States, but they, they were leaving the, the boonies, so to speak, and they were moving into the cities. Well, obviously, if you live in the city, you don't need a dog to herd cattle because you don't have cattle in the city, but you might really like having a dog. And so because so many people moved to the cities, more and more people saw dogs and cats as a pet and they didn't see them as just something that you, you feed scraps to and they're not really part of the family. You know, dogs and cats became more and more part of the family the more people moved to the city and because people moved to the city, people needed food to feed their, their dogs and and their cat, you know, so they had to think of a way to provide that service and to provide that product. So now we have Petco and PetSmart and it's a multi-billion dollar industry now, multi-billion dollar. Just think about toys that are made, all the different brands of cat food, all the different brands of dog food, cat carriers, pet carriers, I don't think reptiles are pets, I think that's creepy and disturbing because they're cold-blooded and they're not loving. So it's, and I just think that's creepy, but to me, a pet is like a dog or a cat, maybe a a rabbit, Um, but for sure a dog or a cat. Well, all these things had to be invented. So, you know, what's interesting is that um, also in this documentary I saw not too long ago, it talked about how originally there was no cat food. It was just dog food. And, Dog food um, used to be made from anything and everything. Like before, there was labeling before there was um, consistency in what they're putting in there. Um, there was a brand, I can't remember the name of it, but they actually put on their label, basically, we're proud that we put horse meat in here. Well, the public was really upset about that because they're like, hey, I don't want you, you know slaughtering horses just to feed that to a dog. Find something else to put in there. And so there's a big outcry about horses being needlessly slaughtered. And sometimes these animals, uh, these horses were diseased. That's another thing. So prior to the Food and Drug Administration being uh, created and prior to this Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, it was just kind of a free-for-all in terms of what all went into dog food. Like they were using roadkill. They were using rodents. They were using rotting food, spoiled food. And so people had really no idea what they were feeding their pet cuz this was now a pet like these dogs and these cats they you know consumers were starting to buy food for their animals and what you have to remember is that back in the day if you had an animal you did not buy them food uh, basically at the same place where you bought food for your family cuz you know you have to remember they did not have superstores or or what's it called super centers or grocery stores like that if you wanted to feed you know an animal or a pet you went to the food store or the the feed store sorry you went to the feed store which is typically where farmers would go to buy grain or food or hay for their their cows their horses their pigs whatever and so it was really interesting to see in this documentary i think it's on the history channel i think if i'm not mistaken but it showed that people's perception of dogs and cats changed over time but initially it was considered repugnant to sell dog food at the same place where people go shopping to buy their food for their family. So there is just kind of this, this public attitude problem (laughs) towards pets. But you have to remember that, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of people that went from being farmers to working in the city. And there's that farmer mentality. You know, I've talked about this in times past. There are many farmers, even still to this day, they they don't have a very positive opinion of dogs or cats, and they don't care if they live or die. They, they just view them as something that is used on their farm, on their property. They don't really see them as a pet. So that was the common mentality of people way, way, way back in the day, basically at the turn of the century. But again, the more people move to the city, the more people realize that, hey, you know, these dogs and cats that we have, they're actually part of the family. And so we need to care about them. And so another part of this documentary that I saw was that initially people or not people, but the, the companies that were making the dog food, they initially were just trying to sell dog food as cat food. And guess what cats did? It, it did not eat. It. it was a total flop because cats don't eat dog food. Dogs will eat cat food because it's higher in fat, but it's not vice versa. So a very specific um, research and development, uh, I think it was by Friskies. Am I wrong? See, the Friskies or Purina, like one of these larger companies or whatever, they came up with the first cat food, the, the the first dry food, I should say. And so what they noticed was that cats really love fish. So they add a fish flavor to their cat food, and cats were more likely to eat these, these little pebbles of food that were specifically made small for cats, Okay what they notice is that when they put a layer or a coating of fat on on the outside of this dry food, cats will eat it. And also, it's very nutritional for them. So this company invented the first dry food, cat food for cats. Later on, I can't remember if it was the same company or a different company, but they invented canned cat food. And then Fancy Feast, you know, like that real pretty cat that has like a a, um, I guess like a, mar- a martini glass in front of it, and it's eating wet food out of it. Fancy Feast and that kind of advertising, that kind of product, I think, came out in the 1980s. So there are many things that have been invented over time, but someone had to think of it. Someone had to invent it. That's my point. So, yes, there were manufacturers back in the day that were making food for people, and, yes, they were putting not-so-good stuff in it, but also um, how is that any different then all the corn syrup that's being put in much of our food and people are getting addicted to corn syrup and they're getting addicted to sugar. Well, we still have manufacturers today that are trying to make their products addictive and to you know give people a high or something. Well, take a look at Red Bull and the and these energy drinks and things like that. There was actually a scandal years and years ago. I can't remember if I was still in college or right after college that this kind of hit the fan. But there were many energy drink manufacturers that got in trouble. It's like those those little bottles that like I don't know I don't think it's ephedrine but um, well maybe it is I don't know but it's like these little bottles of uh, energy uh, I guess energy drinks or whatever or these pills it's like no dose or whatever it's what students would take to stay up all night to study I'm like look if you have to stay up all night to study maybe you've got a bigger problem <laughs> you know I never took that stuff. I was like, I'll just study during the day so I can sleep at night. But anyway, like these no-dose pills and substances that people were buying, it's mostly sold at gas stations. There were many young people that died from heart attacks because of this stuff. And so many of these products were were pulled um, from the shelves and from the market, and rightfully so, because there was really no guidance on the packaging of how much you're supposed to take and also, like, a, a petite woman, let's say a petite woman's like five foot one, she obviously cannot take the same amount as a football player that's like six foot five, two hundred eighty pounds. But yet, the, the the same amount was being sold, regardless of what you weighed and your height and how your body metabolizes things. So those things were pulled, and then there was a diet pill. Was it dextromethorphan or a different one? It did make you lose weight, um, but it sped up your heart. So obviously when you speed up your heart, you're going to be burning more calories because your body thinks it's exercising. Well, if you are continuously taking a diet pill for like weeks on end, you're you're going to do damage to your heart. That's just how it is. It kind of reminds me of Karen Carpenter. Loved her music. I love her voice. She died way too young. I think she died when she was like 35 and she, she passed away in the 80s. Um, she suffered from anorexia, bulimia, and one of the things um that she did that is really bad when you have those conditions is, first of all, she's making herself throw up, and then she's taking laxatives. So what's really bad about all that is that it affects the electrolyte count in your blood. Well, electrolytes, think about electric, electro, well, your heart has two functions. You have basically the... The electrical component of your heart and then you have the pumping uh, component of your heart. So basically whenever you, you go see a heart specialist, sometimes you might have to see two different specialists because you have a specialist that understands the electricity of your heart because it's pumping, right? It's, it's alive, it's moving, you know, it's pumping blood. Then you have the actual pumping part of the muscle of your heart. Well, Unfortunately, when you force yourself to vomit all the time and when you use laxatives, you're losing a lot of electrolytes that are in your blood and in your body. And the more electrolytes you you lose, the harder it is for your heart to pump. It just is because your body needs electrolytes. It's kind of like, you know, whenever you have an upset stomach or or if you have a sick child, typically what you give them, you give them Pedialyte or when I was a kid, um, we were giving Gatorade, like good old fashioned, uh, good old fashioned Gatorade, like the fruit punch flavor. That was pretty much all that was out when I was a kid. Well, does it have a lot of sugar? Yes, but it also has electrolytes, and you need that sugar. So your body needs that to recoup whatever you are vomiting and whatever you are, excuse my language, pooping out. Because one way that, for example, uh, babies can get real sick real quick is if they have nausea and diarrhea because babies, they're they're so tiny and they can easily get dehydrated. So basically what happened with Karen Carpenter, unfortunately, she had anorexia bulimia like ever since she was a teenager and it's really sad. Um, But she died basically from heart failure because her heart just gave out because she was was vomiting and doing all this other stuff to her body and so she wasn't taking into account obviously because... You know, she she had a a psychological disorder, um, which is very common with anorexia, bulimia, because if you love your body and you love yourself, you're not going to do you're not going to do self-harm. Right. But anyway, um, she did not, I guess, have a clear understanding of when you do those kinds of things to your body, you negatively affect your body. And in regards to what she did to her body, um, she greatly affected the electrolyte balance in her body. And that's what caused her to pass away and at a very young age and to have a heart attack. So you had to be careful about these these things. So um, I bring that up because when I was hearing about all these young people dying that were around my age, I was like, what's going on? It's like they're dropping like flies. And it was always around finals week. I'm like, what is going on? Well, that's when it hit the fan that for several years – these companies were selling um a a substance over the counter uh specifically at gas stations like right by the cash register these little tiny they they it looks like um they're not shot glasses but they're really teeny tiny bottles of like superdose caffeine or something i'm like you've got to be careful what you take with that stuff i mean you you just do i mean taking one of those tiny little bottles of no dose or high energy, that's like drinking a twenty-four pack of Mountain Dew or Coca-Cola and expecting to be normal. Like you you're just over consuming caffeine and so you have to be careful about that because it affects the heart. Well, getting back to this with, with food and drugs and you know like with dog food and cat food These companies that were making dog food and cat food, they hired scientists specifically to study dogs and cats. And the reason why they had to hire these scientists to study this is because the world of veterinary medicine did not have a clear understanding, shockingly, of what dogs and cats actually need. Why? Because back in the day, around the turn of the century, most people, if they went somewhere, it was horse and buggy. If they lived out in the boonies, if it was in the city, it might be horse and buggy, but it also might be the trolley. But if you don't have access to those things, then you would walk. So in regards to making sure that your horses are healthy, you would have to hire a, a vet, a veterinarian. But typically they're not, at least back then, they were not skilled in in a small animal practice. And what's interesting is that small animal practice did not really – come about until like I would say the 30s or 40s because prior to the 1930s and 40s um, it was considered kind of it, it was considered stupid to care that much about your pet it just was I don't agree with that concept I don't agree with that thinking but there were many people that just did not value dogs and cats and they they did not care that animals that you see all the time should be healthy and so this is one of those things where the, the food manufacturing industry directly impacted basically modern medicine, but for dogs and cats. So if it wasn't for these manufacturers that were making dog food and cat food, I don't think that we would have small animal practices specifically for dogs and cats. I just don't think it would have happened because most veterinarians back in the day, they, they, they didn't like dogs and cats and they didn't like messing with them. They, they didn't like, um, taking care of them. They didn't take them seriously because they, they just viewed as their, their money making business as cattle and horses. And it's like, wow, how dumb can you be? I mean, just think about how much money people are willing to spend on their dog or their cat these days. They were willing to spend that back in the day, but because people that actually viewed a dog or a cat as a pet, they were made fun of in literature. Like you can go back to books. Uh, th- that were written like even short stories and novels and people that had like a special pet like a dog or a cat way back in 1800s or early 1900s they were mocked and made fun of and ridiculed um even even in fictional novels and things like that and i just think that's such a travesty because if if those people and their pets had not been shamed we could have had more modern medicine way sooner so I think it's, it's interesting to mention that because I've never been a fan of shaming and blaming. I've never been a fan of any of that. I think it's wrong. And I think that whenever um, you make fun of someone or an industry like that, I think that's a reflection of you, not of the person or the industry that you're talking about. And I'm all for modern medicine, but there are some people that think that modern medicine only belongs to certain people, certain demographics. And I just got to say, well, how is that working out for you? <laughs> I mean, really, like um, we, we could have had way more medicine way sooner in our society here in the United States if there had not been so much prejudice and shaming and just this what I call the Victorian era of viewing the human race and because uh, there there was definitely a lot of discrimination here in the United States um during the I'd say at the turn of the century. And I think it's due to the Victorian era and how um how England viewed people and animals that directly impacted the United States, because you have to remember, especially back then, we were a nation of immigrants. We are not so much a nation of immigrants today, not like it was uh back at the turn of the century. Do we still get immigrants? Yes, hopefully legally. But back in the day, we were very much. A huge nation of immigrants, um, but there was not a very positive perception of immigrants, and I think that directly impacted so many things, and I think it's really sad because we, we could have been further down the road a whole lot sooner in terms of medical inventions, medical innovations, and also caring for our livestock and our pets. That's just my personal opinion, but that's just what I've noticed, especially with our healthcare system. And again, I'm not advocating for socialized medicine because I'm not, because socialized medicine is way worse than anything else. But I'm saying that if we had privatized way sooner, things could have been way better. But because we did not privatize things, um, there was more of the gentry that kind of ruled things back in the day. Um, it hindered a lot of people from getting the help that they needed, and it also hindered animals, um, from getting the help they need in terms of like vaccines and healthcare and things like that. Like, just think about, like, back in the day, we used to not have a vaccine or a cure for rabies. So, if you or your pet or your livestock caught rabies, you, you were a goner. So, we, we take, I don't want to say we necessarily take things for granted because I don't like that phrase, but I just think sometimes we we are unpleasantly ignorant. And I think it's important to recognize the blessings that God gives us and to be good stewards of what God has given us. And that's not being a communist or socialist. In fact, I am a Republican capitalist. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that I am a Republican capitalist and I believe in liberty and and freedom and, and democracy and all those beautiful things. But those things don't come about if you don't put God first, because if you don't put God first, then you don't have any of these liberties or these freedoms. And also you won't have democracy and you won't have capitalism. So because the gentry was very much in charge of the United States, unfortunately, for a long period of time. There are just so many things that did not get done that should have gotten done to help our economy, to help our people and to help our pets, our animals, our livestock, our industry, our our manufacturing, and things of that nature. And, you know, things have changed over the years for the better. I still think we need to work on some things. But I think this is a good example of where the public cried out and said, hey, we're, we're not going along with this anymore. There needs to be accountability. And, you know, this also is a precursor to the Consumer Protection Act. So we're going to take a look at that as well, because I think it's very important to recognize that regardless of where you live and how you vote, you are a consumer and you have rights, especially if you are a citizen of the United States. But I will go ahead and end it there for this lovely podcast, but as usual until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole, that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. God bless and bye-bye.